News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it's one thing for a shipment of vaccine to be delayed or maybe not have as many doses as expected. It's quite another to have the whole shipment cancelled altogether. But that is what has happened to the latest expected arrival of the Pfizer vaccine here in Canada. And obviously that puts the federal government under a lot of pressure to answer some questions about this. So to talk more about that, we're joined now by Mike LeCouture, who's our Global News Parliamentary Correspondent. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you doing? Good, thank you. So what does the federal government have to say about this? Well, they're saying that, look, um, obviously unexpected that it would go down to zero. They had already been given warnings from Pfizer that their vaccine would be limited this coming up week. They said that we know that we're only getting about 82% of the vaccine doses that we expected this week. They saw this coming when you consider that Pfizer said, look, we have to retool this uh, Belgian plant to make sure that we can ramp it right up uh, because of the demand. So it's supposed to be temporary. The difficulty that we're seeing, though, is that Canada is seemingly being hit harder than other countries around the world. European countries are seemingly only having about a one-week delay. Our delays are going to... what it seems anyways, is going over the course of about three or four weeks. Um, Yesterday uh, at the ministerial press conference, you saw that Procurement Minister Anita Anand clearly upset, clearly disappointed about um, uh, this and saying that she spent all weekend on the phone uh, with people from Pfizer trying to see if there was any way of getting around this or getting more vaccines to Canada. But the end result is for the week of January 25th, Canada is getting a big fat zero when it comes to the number of doses. Mm. Um, so how you know will that play out across the country? Well, you know we heard from uh, the health minister in BC yesterday saying, look, it's a significant blow to the vaccine timeline. Um, Dix, Adrian Dix, was saying that um, BC was expecting 5,800 doses next week, and this is the other thing is that the head of the vaccine rollout for Canada, Major General Danny Fortin, is saying it'll be felt asymmetrically across the country. And what does that mean for different provinces? Well, because they come in trays, um, if a shipment is reduced, then it's not like uh, we just take some uh, of those off a tray and then hand it over to the province. Um, it, because they come in, in, in packs of, I, I believe it's about 900 or so, um, if if you're falling short of that 900, then you may just not get the tray. Um, so so that's how it's affecting uh, the shortages. Anyways, right. it's affecting different provinces. So it's it's even I hate to put it this way, but it's even worse than we first thought. Um, yeah. And and it's just difficult, right? Because Canada continues to to get criticism and criticized for being behind other countries when you see um, different vaccination rates. And, you know, what does that mean about where Canada will now sit? Um, You know, the Prime Minister yesterday says, look, this doesn't change the overall goal and the contract with Pfizer-BioNTech to have 4 million doses um, from Pfizer by the end of uh, March. That is the contract that they need to fulfill. So it doesn't matter if it, you know, week to week they can't deliver a certain number. Um, they just have to hit that target by the end of March. Is it? Do we know, Mike, if it's just for the one week that the shipment problem is going to happen? Do they expect deliveries to continue on next week as scheduled? 
Yeah, so that the 25th, it'll be zero. It looks like we can we can get more the week after, and then it's supposed to gradually ramp back up into February. But even in February, the first two weeks of February, it seems like Canada isn't 100% sure how much uh, we're getting. So Danny Fortin said that on Thursday, they're hoping to get more information from the, the vaccine supplier to know exactly where we'll sit in February. So does that mean we're just going to have so much vaccine flowing into us um, on, uh, uh, you know, in March? That, that's a possibility. Um, and, you know, so provinces are, are having to adjust now and looking at trying to figure out how do we ramp up? How do we um, you know, how do they adjust to make sure that it's not the slow drip that they thought we were going to get mm-hmm. um, and, and that people were anticipating? So, uh, you know, Minister Anand said, look, if anybody thought that this road was going to be smooth and straight, um, you got to be prepared for some of these types of delays in it. And I think that's, an, you know, an understanding. But I don't know that Canadians ever thought that they'd see the number yeah. zero next to a delivery for one given week. Exactly. All right, Mike, thank you so much for that. Thanks for having me. Well, our federal government here in Canada is expected to announce a plan to regulate hate speech on social media in the coming weeks. This is a very difficult, very complex task, and it brings all sorts of issues to the forefront, like freedom of speech and government intervention and all of that. But all of this comes as a result of what we've seen unfolding in the United States over the last little while as well, and the government here wanted to respond to that. But we thought, let's get some insight from an expert expert on internet policy on this. So joining us is Vivek Krishnamurthy, law professor at the University of Ottawa. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, it's my pleasure, Sydney. Now, is this something, Vivek, that you think we should have expected, like given that the United States is turning their attention to it? Was it inevitable, do you think, the Canadian government would try to do this? So I think we've been expecting this for some time. Um, The Liberal Party's 2019 election platform uh, made a pledge that they would introduce legislation um, that would basically require social media companies and other Internet companies to promptly take down, uh, quote unquote, illegal content or face fines. So that's been in the air since 2019, the fall of 2019. So we've been waiting to see when the legislative proposal would come out. And a bill still has not been introduced, but... um, we're starting to get some reporting as to the government's thinking. And of course, <clears throat> it's perhaps inevitable that the events in the United States in the last few weeks have just accelerated mm-hmm. um, you know, the timetable on this legislation, given um, the demonstration we're seeing of the real world harms of things that happen online. So what do we know then about what potentially the federal government is considering here? So based on some of the reporting that we're seeing, and I'm not privy to any insider information Mm -hmm. on this, I'm waiting to see the bill as well. Um, It sounds like the federal government is um, considering a proposal that is similar to a law in Germany, which is called the Netz DG law. And what that would require is essentially um, companies like YouTube, Twitter, Facebook that host content that you and I and other people post online um, would have a... Um, obligation to take down content that is illegal, uh, so violates Canadian law within a specified period after they are given some kind of notice of that. And if they don't do so, um, there would be the possibility of large fines. So in Germany, 
the maximum fine is 50 million euros. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would expect that, uh, you know, if, if Canada's modeling our proposal on Germany, uh, there'd be similarly large fines uh, under the Canadian legislation. How cooperative are these social media and technology giants to being regulated like this? So social media companies do have strong policies on the books that actually ban a lot of content, right? Um, And their policies permit, um, basically, they prohibit content that is legal. So, for example, in Canada, we do have laws against hate speech. But those are pretty extreme. You have to really um, say some pretty awful things to be prosecuted under our hate speech laws. Um, But all the major social media companies, the lines that they draw as to what they permit are actually quite a bit more restrictive. But the problem that we seem to face is one of imperfect enforcement by the companies of their own policies, right? And Mm -hmm. part of the reason for that is just the sheer volume of what's being uh, said online and also the need to understand the context, right? So something may not appear to be a hate uh, hate symbol, right? Um, and unless you are you are uh, you understand the context of what's being said, either the language or whatever else, uh, you may make the wrong decision um, on that. So that's part of the part of the issue. Now, uh, the companies are not, I think, averse to being regulated. Um, I actually think there's value in the government setting up more standards for what's in and what's out. Um, some of my concerns about this law, though, are really around process and example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could get into those. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, of course, well, we need to know a bit more about the law itself. So we're, we're we're kind of debating a hypothetical right now. Right. But what are you kind of concerned about? What are you really hoping that they don't go into an area? So I think there's a few things. Um, first of all, this kind of approach, like the German, similar to the German approach, is under-inclusive. So as I mentioned, there's a lot of content that is lawful but awful. Um, take misinformation. Um, there are, it's very, very difficult to prosecute someone for spreading misinformation. That's often protected expression under our Charter of Rights. So by definition, a law that uh, seeks to deal with illegal content is going to leave vast sectors of problematic content unregulated. So that's one problem. Um, I think the second thing is that if you have laws with strong penalties um, for inaction, you are going to incentivize perhaps overreaction by the platform. So if you're facing significant financial penalties for not taking things down promptly, you may want to be over-inclusive and just say, well, this is a borderline case, but I'm not going to take the risk. Let me take that down. But my third concern, which is a much bigger concern, um, has to do with the kind of example that we in Canada would be setting for other countries um, that don't adhere to human rights and the rule of law. Um, So if Canada enacts a law that says take down what's illegal in Canada within 24 hours or else, mm-hmm. what kind of example does that set up for the, you know, Iran's and Saudi Arabia's and Thailand's of the world, uh, where it can be, you know, a criminal offense to criticize the government? Right. Um, so we need to think carefully about our approach and uh, what example we set as a, you know, democratic country that believes in human rights and free expression and those kinds of values. It is interesting, though, isn't it, Vivek, that these companies like Google or Facebook, whatever, they are open to some regulation. It feels like it would probably take some of the pressure off them to regulate all this content if they're just told by the government what is acceptable and what isn't. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think the companies do want some more guidance. Um, it's it's a difficult position that they're in, right, to have to make these decisions uh, about what stays on and, and, you know, what goes down. So having uh, more guidance is a good thing. Now, of course, what the companies have been doing in recent years is they've been aligning their policies um, with international human rights norms on free expression. So it's not just... Uh, they're moving away from the, you know, what Mark Zuckerberg thinks when he wakes up in the morning model of content regulation to trying to ground it on some legal standards. Um, so there is a need for more governmental guidance on this. But, you know, my concern is really about the nature of the approach. And we also need to be careful, uh, given that the Internet is an international network. And I think there's a great benefit to having people right. across borders being able to communicate freely. And if we are going to go down a certain kind of path that restricts that free flow of global information, what's the effect in other places that don't share our commitment right. again to strong rule of law uh, and, and you know democratic values? Lots of good points there, Vivek. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Appreciate that. Vivek Krishnamurthy, who's a professor of law at the University of Ottawa, also the director of the Samuelson Glushko Canadian Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic. So clearly an expert in, you know, internet policy and law talking about the federal government moving forward on their plans to regulate hate speech on social media. That is expected in the next few weeks. One of the things that we saw a lot of right at the beginning of this pandemic was everything kind of closing down at certain times, like reducing store hours. And I guess the idea was to discourage people from kind of going out and and shopping there and doing that and, and being close to other people. But it turns out reduced store hours may actually be leading to more crowding and hence, you know, more problems. Essentially, this is according to data from a local analytics company. Ineo operates anti-theft devices in retail stores, and they are seeing bottlenecks occurring later in the day as closing time approaches. Their CEO, Kyle Hall, joins us now for more on this. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning. I found this so fascinating. So tell me, when you took a look at the traffic, the retail traffic in stores, what did you find uh, when they reduced their store hours? Yeah, we were kind of curious. Anecdotally, we'd heard that um, based on the health order uh, on New Year's, when the stores had the kind of on short was closed quickly, the stores said we were so busy and we heard this dance. We said, what does the data tell us? And we looked at the data, and the, the data showed us was the exact same number of people on New Year's Eve shopped in the in the stores as on Christmas Eve, but they had to do it in a much shorter time period. And we saw this massive spike in the hour before closing. And it was like people hadn't had time to adjust their shopping patterns and boom, they all arrived at the store because they knew it was closing. Right. So essentially you're leading to more crowding then in that store, it would seem like. Definitely. You know, same number of people going to the store in a shorter period of time made that every hour of the day a little bit higher, but those hours right before closing, we, we kind of looked and one of our people said, that's a crunch. And we were all you know, kind of turned the phrase COVID crunch at the last minute. Um, the, the people right. you know, wanted to get their shopping done knew the store was closing and they all kind of went at the same time. So do you think this is something that occurred throughout the pandemic then? Because a lot of stores reduced hours, right? Rather than being open nine to five, they're open, say, 12 to five or something like that. So do you think it had an impact? So we looked back in March to look at some of the data patterns there. There wasn't you know, any specific health order at the time that said you have to close at this time. But we had different stores that shortened their hours and, uh, you know, adjusted their hours. And the first week, you saw a drop off. You know, the, the people were arriving at the stores and the stores were closed because there wasn't a lot of notice. But as the week went on, you know, two, 10 days in, 14 days in, we saw a shift in the pattern where the hours just, it just got busier. The people had adjusted and knew the stores closing and they went 
when the stores were open and shorter hours. And again, we saw that crunch in the last hour. The last hour was always much, much busier than it had been in a normal day when there were normal shopping hours. That kind of goes against all the thinking about this, doesn't it? I think it does. And so that's why we wanted to publish the data. You know, the health, health authorities have done a great, great job with limited data. Like nobody knew, right? It's unprecedented. Nobody knows what's going to happen in these things. And so we had some data and we thought, okay, let's get this data out there to help them with decision-making in the future. Okay. Uh, how do you think that, that your info is going to be used then? Well, I'm hoping that, that you know, for especially stores that are essential services, grocery, pharmacy, and even liquor stores where, you know, people have this as a big part of their lives, um, that we can look at these hours and say, Hey, you know, it, making abrupt changes at the last minute and, and forcing stores to close isn't isn't actually a good policy. You know, let's make sure that you know the, the shopping hours are of enough length where the, the people that are going to go shop can get to the stores in a in a normal manner and not have to force them into these last hour crunches. It's almost like, yeah, you're right. That if they extended their hours and said, "Listen, don't worry about coming at peak hours. We're going to be open longer so we can spread it out," would be a better idea. Yeah, and we saw some of that, right? Where some of the stores opened early for seniors' hour to try and get seniors through early in the day, and you know, even Costco's were open in longer hours as that went on. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. You know, spread it out, um, allow the stores to you know work on at, at not top capacity. Because, you know, it's it's affecting the stores and it's affecting the shoppers as well. It clearly is. All right, Kyle, thank you. No, great. Good good speaking today. That's Kyle Hall. He's the CEO of a company called Ineo. They are a local analytics company. And they took a look at all of their data during the pandemic. And they found that if stores reduced hours, operating hours during the pandemic, which let's face it, tons of stores and retail outlets did that, it actually didn't help in terms of like crowding or reducing traffic. just meant that people kind of got bottlenecked at certain times of the day, which goes counter to thinking that if you actually extended your hours, you could spread out that traffic and that would be better, right? So that is something that we could say we have learned actually during this pandemic. Some places are still operating on reduced hours. Now, we know it's an historic day in the United States today with the inauguration of a new president, but also that inauguration looks quite unlike any other that we have seen in modern times. There are about 25,000 members of the National Guard in Washington, D.C. right now to assist with the security for the inauguration and heightened security at at state capitals right across the United States. For more on the security concerns today, we're joined now by Paul Violas, who's a CBS uh, security analyst. Analyst CBS, thank you very much for being <laughs> CBS. Paul, thank you very much for being here. Always a pleasure to join you, Simi. Now, these pictures that we're seeing out of Washington, D.C. today, they look mm-hmm. unprecedented. What is going on with security there? Well, before I hit you with that, let me tell you what you're seeing pales in comparison to what you're not seeing. The vast majority of security that's been implemented in the Capitol are things that are behind the scenes. There are operators that are in plain clothes, and they are not visible to the naked eye. So, uh, yes, 25,000 National Guard's troops, FBI, Secret Service, D.C. Capitol, uh, D.C. Metro, uh, U.S. Capitol Police, all on hand, uh, as well as police officers from various police departments, such as the NYPD, are on hand to, to provide an unprecedented level of security. But yet, it's what you're not seeing that really has the greatest volume. Interesting. So that, you know, it already looks like it's unreal with all the soldiers there, but you're saying there's even more behind the scenes. Oh, considerably, Simi. And and you know what? The best way for your listeners to kind of draw an analogy is 
I mean, you've got the RCMP, which is by far one of the greatest law enforcement military agencies in, in the world. Um, right alongside of that is the FBI. Both are extremely judicious and very meticulous in not just how they gather intelligence, but how they bequeath intelligence. And it has to be vetted and verified and then vetted and verified again before that's, that's disseminated to law enforcement. But to disseminate it the way the FBI has to the general public is almost unprecedented. Very rarely do you see that, which tells us right. that the threat is incredibly real. What about at the state capitals then? Why is there such a security alert there? Same thing. Um, you know, the, the groups that, that the Bureau and other U.S. intelligence sources are looking at are extremely well-organized, well-funded, uh, and well-staffed, Simi. I mean, these are, bearing in mind, the United States, and you probably already know this already, but for the listeners that don't, the, we're looking at over 6,000 organized hate groups in the United States, over 6,000. And Simi, I'm not talking about two or three guys that write nasty things on a bulletin board. I'm talking about real hate groups. Uh, so the amount of information that's come in amongst the pointing me at some of the larger ones you know, is, is alarming, to say the very least, not just for, you know, physical threats, but also threats of possible ordinances. Okay. So again, like we keep using these words, Paul, like unprecedented and all this stuff, but here we are to try to guarantee that there would be, you know, a safe and orderly transition of power. Do you think that message has gotten through? I think it's gotten through, but I don't think it's resonated, and I certainly don't think it's going to be a deterrent. Uh, if we don't see major incidents today. It's not because the groups that we're looking at were uh, intimidated, if you will, by a show of force. Uh, again, knowing uh, right. coming from the intelligence community, these are people, Simi, that defy any form of logic, uh, as you would possibly think a reasonable person would have. Oh, we've seen that, haven't we? Well, Paul, thanks so much for your time this morning. Yes, ma'am. Always a pleasure, Sammy. Have a great day. You too. That's Paul Vailis, is a CBS reporter and crime and security analyst, talking about all the heightened security that they've got in the United States today, not just in Washington, D.C., but at state capitals around the country because of those security concerns. Well, when the vaccines are available, I think quite a few employers will be confronted with the question of how do you make sure your employees get vaccinated, there is vaccine hesitancy out there, even among people who work in the long-term you know, care home system here in BC. And even if the provincial health authority doesn't make the COVID-19 vaccine mandatory, which they've indicated they won't, doesn't mean that employers might not think about doing that. But can they? That's the question. So joining us now is Aliyah Varani. She's an employment lawyer with Semfir Tumarkin LLP, and she joins us to talk more about the legal ins and outs of this. Aliyah, thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Is this a question that you have been getting more of lately? I have been asked this question, not in terms of, you know, files across my desk just yet, because as you mentioned, this vaccine is just being rolled out and there's going to be priority for certain groups. So it's just not uh, it's just not as widely available to, to really have a, a live issue right now. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be something I'm anticipating as we get closer to the end of 2021, because it is going to be something that that we seriously need to think about and employers need to think about. Yeah, is this the time for employers then to come up with that plan of how they're going to deal with this? Exactly. So you're really ahead of things in terms of asking this question, um, because it is going to be something that they that they need to deal with. Okay, so how, um, how can employers approach this then? I mean, is there any law that would allow them to tell employees, listen, you have to get vaccinated if you're going to work here? 
unfortunately or, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, there's no way in law that an employer can force their employees to take a COVID vaccine. So there's just no way that they can make that vaccine mandatory as a condition of employment or require employees receive the COVID vaccine. Um, you know, they could strongly suggest that their employees get vaccinated to decrease the spread of COVID in the workplace. But it's entirely another thing to require that uh, the COVID vaccine or in fact, any vaccine as a condition uh, to keep working. So unfortunately, uh, like I said, there's just no way in law right now, at least for an employer to do that. Perhaps the government could change the laws around that. But but the law as it stands right now, it's just not possible. So what can an employer do then? I mean, if people want to come back into their office, you know, and, and be with all the other employees, I'm sure the employer would, would like to have some precautions in place. Yes. So you're absolutely right. And in every province, the employers do have an obligation to provide a safe and healthy workplace for their employees. And so in the context of COVID, that would include taking all reasonable steps to protect their employees from the spread of COVID. And it seems at first, I think, hard to reconcile that with the idea that they can't force any of their employees to take a vaccine, but it's going to be essentially a balancing act between the rights and obligations of the employer and the employee. So what they could do, what employers could do in this situation is introduce policies, guidelines to limit the spread, including a strong recommendation to get the vaccine. But that recommendation should also include a medical or religious exemption for employees who would fall under that category and do not want to get vaccinated. So meaning that, you know, if an individual has religious or medical grounds that require them not to get vaccinated, they're not going to be subject to that recommendation. Um, That could be contrary to those employees' medical or religious rights under the Human Rights Code. Right. Um, And then, again, if if an employee refuses to get the vaccine, then uh, for whatever reason, then the employer needs to make sure that they are still providing the rest of the workforce with a safe work environment. And so what that could look like is the employee who refuses to get the vaccine maybe wears a mask, they abide by social distancing, perhaps there's preventative screens or working in shifts so they're not in contact with others. Uh, There's many ways to to provide that accommodation. I was wondering about that, though, because then then do you have to balance the privacy concerns? Like if you're the employer, do you have to say, well, I can't tell everybody that there's somebody who doesn't want to get the vaccine? That's interesting. So I, I think in this situation, it is going to be a balancing act. And, and what, what employers can say and what the public should know is that because there is no requirement to be forced to take the vaccine right now, that it's, uh, you know, it, it's not going to be something that, that uh, really singles someone out as being based on a medical or religious um, grounds. So in terms of that type of privacy, it's not going to be like anybody who doesn't get the vaccine, it's clearly because they, they fall right. under one of those categories. So I think that there's a certain amount of privacy that's still afforded. That being said, employees do have a right to know that they are working in a, a safe and healthy environment and, and ensuring that their employers are held to that standard set by WorkSafe. Aliyah, it just sounds so much like if you're an employer, if you're a manager, you should be working on this policy now. Absolutely. If you haven't already been thinking about ways to accommodate people in the workplace, given that this may be something that happens in the near future, it's a perfect time to reintroduce policies that provide for people um, being separate, social distancing, personal protective gear, accommodating somebody with a medical uh, or religious requirement. This is a perfect time to review those policies and update them for the introduction of the vaccine.
Right. So let's say theoretically then could an employer, you know, communicate to all their employees and say, listen, we strongly encourage you to get this. But if you are not going to get it, here are the steps that you're going to have to take in order to come back to work in the workplace. Yes, that would be that would certainly be appropriate. And according to the employer's obligations to ensure a health and safe, a health, healthy and safe workplace for for the rest of, of the employees. All right. Interesting. Leah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Salia Varani, who's an employment lawyer and associate at Samfir Tumarkin LLP, talking about where employers can go and where they can't go when it comes to, you know, getting your employees the COVID-19 vaccine. She makes an excellent point. If you're a manager, if you own a company, now is the time to be developing these policies. You may not have worried about it yet because you think, oh, well, I mean, I've got a couple months. No, no, do it now so your employees are very clear and they know what the company policy is. A lot of news going on out there these days, so you may have missed the fact that the Auditor General of BC released a report yesterday, and there's certainly a lot in there that is worth highlighting. Now, this just weeks after that huge data hack at TransLink that we still don't know enough about, the Auditor General found that critical provincial government agencies, even the Ministry of Health, are vulnerable to cyber attack. And this isn't the first time this has been pointed out by the Auditor General. So why can't we figure this out, close that gap and get things more secure? So we thought, let's talk to an expert about that. Joining us is Dominic Vogel, the founder and chief strategist of cybersecurity provider, CyberSC. Dominic, thanks for being back with us. Hi, Simi. Good morning. Okay, this like looking at this, it would seem like there's a lot of departments here, ministries that have a problem. Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Citizen Services, Ministry of Health. What is going on there? Why can't governments get this IT situation under control? Oh, well, that's a good question. You know, and, and the thing I, I definitely want to make sure that we, we provide some context for your for your audience and listeners is that you know, the, the, the scope of what this particular audit focused on was around what the concept referred to as IT asset management. So this basically means, you know, does the government, these different agencies, know the different digital assets? So that could be laptops, servers, smartphones that they that are used and in, in order to, to provide a sort of a, a network and IT environment. It's important to be able to protect what you know in order to do security uh, properly. But this in itself isn't necessarily saying that you know, data security is being done poorly by the government. Um, and the other the other thing I wanted to point out as well is that. Uh, again, certainly not trying to give the, uh, the government a free pass here, but the, that concept as well, asset management, is an issue that many organizations, even some of the largest organizations on earth, still struggle with today. So it's de- definitely an area that still needs further investment in, in order to, to, to do a better job at it. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So clearly they're not alone in this. So then, Dominic, given that it's such a huge issue for so many companies and governments, why aren't we doing it better, I guess? Uh, I think that the main reason is that it, it comes down to, to leadership, you know, and, and, and the thing that I, I really want to point out as well is that provincially, uh, at least from a, from a cybersecurity uh, perspective, um, the province is, is one of the, the top chief information security officers in, in the country, in, in my opinion. Uh, so we have very strong security leadership. Uh, however, that leadership is, is dwarfed from, uh, from the, the ministers and the deputy ministers and, and, and other top bureaucrats. Um, at least in the, in the government uh, sector, you know, so it's a, it's incumbent on those individuals, you know, uh, uh, in order to truly make an investment in cybersecurity. The people who know about cybersecurity in the government, 
have been clamoring about it for years. <laughs> uh, so really, especially from, from being a citizen, I think it's important that we uh, reach out to our MLAs and our various levels of government to make sure that they are investing in cybersecurity because uh, it's something in a digital age that absolutely needs to be done. Right. And so what can we do then to protect ourselves if we can't necessarily trust everywhere that our information is? Uh, yes, and that's that's where we are in a funny funny point in his, history. Well, maybe not funny, but uh, <laughs> a slightly twisted, yeah. I suppose, a point in time in history. Um, well, it really comes down to, to what I refer to as accountability. So, at least uh, in the context of the, of the government here, like I mentioned, reach out to your MLAs, tell them how important it is to you um, as a citizen that the government takes additional additional steps and goes above and beyond to protect the data uh, of the citizens of this province. Um, and then when we're talking about from a more of a private sector perspective, and you know, if you're going, you know, when you're dealing with a bank or financial institution or uh, uh, other organizations where you share your data, actually start asking those questions. To me, it needs to become uh, part of almost a customer accountability uh, in which, you know, just when you go shop at different stores, you know, certain stores you right. shop at because of different preferences, add data security and privacy to that list of preferences but look at, you, you shop somewhere. But some places we don't have a choice. Like, look at TransLink, right? We just don't, we don't even know fully what happened there. They gave us such little information, and yet, you know, a lot of people's information was at risk. That's that, that, that's very true, Simi. And, and, and that's, again, you know, back to my uh, you know, twisted point in history where we are. There's certain things that are in uh, within our control, and there, there are things that, that are outside of our control. And uh, really, you know, where I think as citizens, where it's so important is that we don't lose sight of, of right. uh, making sure that we... We seem to have lost Dominic there. Oh, it's too bad about that. Uh, but he did have some good advice there that if you are concerned about that, make sure you bring that up with your local politician. That is Dominic Vogel, the founder and chief strategist of Cyber SC. And we were breaking down the Auditor General's report that highlighted yesterday some security risks that are still present, uh, cyber security risks, I should say, uh, even with government ministries. In about 20 minutes time, our special network coverage of the inauguration of Joe Biden as president will get underway. But before that happens, we want to talk about the pandemic recovery benefit here in BC, because hundreds of thousands of British Columbians out there, maybe it's you, are still waiting for that payment from the province. As many as one in three applications have been flagged for further review. And many people, and believe me, I've gotten the emails on this. Many people say, listen, I filled everything out correctly. Why am I having to prove I live where I live and I have to do all this extra documentation. So when are people going to get their money? What's gone wrong here? So joining us now to talk more about this is Selena Robinson, the Finance Minister of BC. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me, Cindy. Why have there been so many problems with handing out this money? Well, well, first of all, I think it's important to note that over 70% of the applications received have been automatically verified. People have received the benefit uh, within a matter of days. Um, and, but there are certainly uh, quite a number that uh, need uh, an extra set of eyes um, and, and can, it can absolutely be frustrating. And I absolutely appreciate that. Um, typically, um, in those cases, applications can uh, be flagged for manual review for a number of reasons. It could be uh, perhaps a change in marital status. It could be that their numbers that they put in don't match up with what we have on file. Um, it could be um, errors in application or transposed numbers. Um, the other one that, that has come up is a, if a person moved to BC in 2020, they may not have access to their CRA data. So there's a variety of reasons why it doesn't sort of automatically go through. But I, I want to recognize that uh, 1,520,000 uh, 1, people have received funds 
uh, automatically, and the, the system worked um, very quickly for them. But in this case, we do have um, many thousands that uh, require um, a manual handling. Uh, and that and that takes a bit more time. Right. But that seems like an awful lot of problems. Like you said, 70 percent of people process. That's still a lot of people who haven't been for problems that seem kind of minor. That's a lot of numbers. You're right. It is a lot of numbers. And uh, but we also want to make sure that people get their full entitlement. It, it wouldn't be great if people were entitled to the full benefit, but didn't get it because the numbers didn't match up. We also have to do our, our due diligence and, and make sure that there's checks and balances. So, for example, I've been hearing some people um, through the social media are saying, well, I'll just apply again. And that actually creates more problems because now they've applied twice. And so that will pull their Again, it needs to go through a manual review. It won't speed things up. It actually slows things down. So again, uh, you know, we need to, um, you know, recognize how frustrating it is. Uh, we want it to work as quickly as it can for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the largest program that this province has ever undertaken. And so we built the system to be um, automatic. Uh, and so for um, uh, one and a half million British Columbians, it has been automatic. Um, and we're st- certainly hearing stories. There's one fellow named Chris who sent a note saying, you know, got my money within a few days. Just wanted to let you know, I, I, I fixed my 20 year old truck uh, with this money and it's made a difference because it's the only set of wheels I have. Um, you know, so we're, we're hearing those stories where it's really making a difference in people's lives. And that's right. a million and a half British Columbians who've really benefited. And yes, there are, you know, Many who, you know, 30% of the applications that require an extra, uh, an extra um, uh, set of hands, a set of eyes, just to, to either to double check or to, or to confirm information. And so um, it's, it is going to take a little bit longer for, for those people. Right. Are you concerned, though, with all of the hiccups that seem to have gone with this and what's going to be done to make sure that doesn't happen in the future? Well, this is, like I said, a very unique program. We've never done a program this big. And I want to, again, thank the public service who worked really fast through this entire pandemic, building programs. Typically, a program like this would be a year in the making. And we moved quickly because we wanted to get money into people's hands. I think we've been successful. 70% of people have, have these, this resource in their hands right now, and they are uh, continuing to uh, contribute to the economy, and it's making a difference in people's lives. Uh, this program is, um, people can apply right through to June 30th, so we have it um, for an, still a number of months. People can continue to apply. If people haven't applied, we ask them to do so. And we're working as quickly as we can, making sure that people get the entitlement uh, that, uh, that they're eligible for. Now, let's talk about the business supports here as well. I mean, the the government is still sitting on, you know, a couple hundred million dollars that hasn't been handed out in support for businesses. Why the slow uptake on those programs? Again, I, you know, I want to uh, acknowledge again the, the speed with which public service has been putting these programs together. Um, and when we put it out uh, back in the fall um, with, you know, the checks and balances, making sure it was being targeted to the right businesses, we certainly got feedback saying um, it needs to be broader. It's, it's cumbersome. Um, and so my, my colleague, Ravi uh, Callan, Mr. Minister Callan, went back to the t- Back to, back to staff, back to the public service, and said, okay, let's incorporate this feedback. I know that the, the business community um, was, was very helpful in providing feedback. Um, so they've re- rejigged it uh, to make sure that there was um, different eligibility requirements, lowering the threshold, making sure that, that businesses that needed it uh, could access 
uh, access these funds. Right. They're uh, pushing that out right now, and, and I'm grateful that you're asking the question because it means that we can in- encourage businesses that, that have been impacted by the pandemic to make the application. Uh, they, too, are working as quickly as they can uh, to process and make sure that we can get uh, the targeted funds to those those businesses that need it. I know that millions of dollars have gone out the door uh, to um, restaurants and tourism-affected um, um, uh, businesses as well as accommodation, agriculture, transportation. It's gone out to many, many businesses, but we know that there's many more. Right. And we want to say, reach out to us. Uh, we're here to help. This is not alone. We've certainly heard from businesses that alone would be way too cumbersome for them, that they needed grants. We, we're, we're, uh, that's exactly the kind of program it is. Um, so we want to make sure that we hear from, um, from folks uh, right. and, and, and get the money out the door as quickly well, as possible. One thing I guess you've heard from businesses then is that they don't think the BC government has provided enough support. There was a Greater Vancouver Board of Trade survey released this week mm-hmm. that said they businesses feel the government could do more. So are, are there plans to do more? That's exactly what we're continuing to have conversation around our table, around our cabinet table. What does recovery look like? What else do we need to do? We have been in this place for for 10 months and British Columbians have done an amazing job of taking care of ourselves, taking care of each other, um, and have been responsive to Dr. Henry and to Adrian Dix. And that's been, um, that's got us in this great place, waiting the vaccines, but we also need to be ready for recovery. And we're constantly meeting with the business community. I think, I think it was just this week, uh, today's Wednesday. So I think it was yesterday. I think the premier met with the economic, uh, recovery task force. Um, and I know that constantly uh, staying in touch with the business community, making sure that we hear what else we need to be doing. And that's the conversations that we have weekly as we uh, ad- address how to best move forward on this recovery. Do you, so can they expect to hear more perhaps leading up to the budget? Uh, there's, there's always more um, happening. Uh, certainly the budget is the next uh, big um, conversation that we'll have with British Columbians about where we want to go. Uh, and, and right now, uh, I know that uh, Minister Kalan is out there uh, talking to business groups, making sure that uh, this uh, this fund gets the uptake that we know is needed. And so getting word out there um, is absolutely critical. I know that he's just sent a letter to, for example, all the accountants right across British Columbia to say, check in with your businesses. This is available to them. Um, you know, get the applications in. Tell us about what they need so that we can deliver this money. So I want to say to all of your listeners Cindy, if they um, know of a business owner, if they're a business owner, please reach out to us. Check in with your accountant. They have all the information. Um, they can help with the, um, and, and we're paying accountants to, to put the application together. Uh, so we recognize that one of the pieces of feedback we heard was, for example, for a small business owner, um, it's really hard to put together an application. It yeah. does require, you know, paperwork, of course. We have to do um, our due diligence. And so, you know, account, there's, there's funds to pay for professionals to put together the application for you. So um, that's some of the feedback. We've incorporated that mm-hmm. um, in, in, in order to really get the money to the businesses to get them through this next this next piece that we're facing. Um, and and I and I know that you know we're, we're we're we see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it's a long tunnel. Um, and I know that that's really frustrating. We just need to get through the tunnel. Um, so that we can um, get through this other side of this pandemic. All right. Well, listen, Minister Robinson, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much, uh, Sydney. Have a great day.